Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I never really knew my grandfather. My granddad worked on the buses in Birmingham and found a group of white men beating up another black man at the back of the bus. What we think we know. Black Wall Street. Myth or reality? I wondered if my granddad had always been the violent man that I'd come to know him as, or whether some of the cruelty of the UK had turned him into that man. I'm Clark Kent, and in our first season of Reclaimed and Rewritten, I'll be exploring the myths and realities of Tulsa and the 1921 race riots that decimated the thriving Black community known as Deep Greenwood. I don't think it serves us to mythologize Black people who have come before us. The aim of Reclaimed and Rewritten is to find and tell the whole truth of our complicated histories, leaving no stone unturned. Some truths will be difficult to hear, and others will bring great pride and joy. Yes, a police officer's life was lost, as were the lives of two black mothers in that year. But it's almost as if white supremacy felt an urgent need to violently reassert and affirm its authority in Tottenham in 1985, as it did in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's our final episode. We've received quite a few voice notes from you, beautiful people. And so today I'm joined by British journalist Paula Akpan to listen to you and discuss your perspectives on the story of Tulsa and the UK connection. Hello, Paula. Hi. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm back with the Clarkisha Kent. Come on. <laughs> it's nice to have you back. I wanted to ask you, since you know this is the final, our final last hurrah, what were your favorite moments um, on the podcast? So obviously I'm going to be biased to myself and say that the episodes that I feature in are A1. No, honestly, I yes, do think that... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, I was waiting for you to <laughs> say something <laughs> right. to agree with me, yeah. affirm me. Like, damn, what's this is going to do? Listen, um, I got you. <laughs> But I do think that um, the way the connections have been formed between Tulsa and critical events that have happened in the UK as well, I think that's so powerful because we we really do think of ourselves in silo. And I think also in the UK, obviously I can't speak for everyone, but I think that I've always found it quite frustrating the way that African-American history kind of supersedes Black British history in the UK. So to kind of think about it in another lens where it's not actually jostling or in competition or being pitted against one another as to which is like the greater violence, but actually finding those connections that ultimately say (laughs) the state is the problem as always. Um, I think that that has been really, really powerful and is a great way to kind of just rejig how we're thinking about our international kind of histories. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a shared struggle. Uh, it doesn't have to be a competition. And we know enough, having done this podcast, that uh, there are some 
very striking and um, disturbing patterns um, in these violences or these instances of violence that we um, read about and we've discussed. So I 100% agree with you. I think the biggest thing I've learned with this is that um, it's all it's all connected. Maybe the accent of the state doing the violence changes, but that's about it. Absolute facts. There's something that is kind of invigorating about making those connections and seeing those patterns and seeing them for what they are and thinking about, okay, now that we have this knowledge, now that we can see that there is, you know, this evidence of these lives that have, black lives that have been disrupted, disturbed, ended, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? How can we further amplify those stories and those voices that can't um, amplify or speak their own? stories themselves. I think disrupted is a perfect word too. It literally always takes me back to Toni Morrison. Her whole thing was like, you know, the greatest um, injustice of racism is like the time that it steals from us. That disturbance that it causes where, you know, we mind in our black ass business and here comes the state. Here comes the state, you know, or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever white entity to um, derail what we're doing. So, Clarkisha, what have been some of the best moments for you while working on the podcast? So, in this order, episode three and two, right? So, three dealt, like, a huge chunk, like, with me speaking with particularly Dr. Geraldine Eulenberg, getting to talk to her specifically about how religion is weaponized by whiteness, but specifically Christianity, because I feel like We like to let that religion off the hook for a variety of reasons, um, especially because it's been so whitewashed. So just having her on here to discuss the way in which it is weaponized to then commit violence against us um, was very illuminating. And then the second thing was definitely the episode on Dick Rowland because it just further highlighted the history of literally what happens when, you know, you are a Black person, but specifically a Black man, and you just look at, a, I guess, glance in the direction of a white woman in a way that is not liked, and what happens afterwards, like the the incredible amount of violence, the intensity of the violence that occurs afterwards. But also, in addition to that, it did also highlight the fact that sometimes it don't even have nothing to do with them. You know, they're just kind of used as like the cover story or the cover to, to jump into the violence. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. I think especially what you kind of said about Christianity, the KKK, how it's been weaponized and distorted. It makes me wonder how Black people of Christian faith, how they reconcile those violences and how they understand it for themselves. I left the church at like around 15 when I was just like this is not really doing it for me and if I want to find my way back at some point then I will um but I guess if you have grown up Christian you still practice and you're very much you know um embedded within the community how do you contend with the way that Christianity does feature in a lot of anti-black violence across the US uh UK Africa specifically like colonial spaces The cognitive dissonance that happens is really interesting, right? I actually liken it to being um, a female fan of, like, rap, right? The genre, I don't care what people say, is so anti-woman, so anti-queer, right? So you'll be listening to a dope-ass beat, and here come 
the rapper talking about get money i be slapping my hoes and meanwhile i'm just in the back like wow that sucks but this beat is awesome yeah like you just i think that's kind of what it's like i love the singing i love choirs i love all of that we have a really great musical tradition that like spans the entire globe not just even in this country right and you know even the way that like black people preach or put together sermons is really dope for the most part you know we should be having these discussions but we don't, because if we have these discussions, then you start unraveling the charade. You start unraveling the religion and maybe what it actually means to you. You really have to think about these things for yourself, especially where religion and spirituality is concerned, right? Like, you really have to ask yourself the question, am I doing this because I want to do this? Or am I doing this? Am I going through these motions because I was taught to do this, right? And people don't want to ask themselves these questions. They just rather be like, this is what I do. This is how it is. Very like, I don't want to say it's existentialist, but it's, you know, it's giving nihilism, lots of apathy, but apathy that's kind of dressed up with, you know, religious allegory and iconography. Like I can keep going, but <laughs> that is kind of like the basis of it. You used so many big words, and like that was just like, mm, mm, muy bien. <laughs> I want to move on to hearing our first voice note. It's been really cool listening to the Reclaimed and Rewritten podcast. Um, the format is super digestible. And also, Clarkisha's a really good host. You can tell that the, all the guests are, like, comfortable enough to, to speak about what they're talking about. Oh, that was such oh, a nice voice note. That's sweet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, is there any more? Is there any more? Okay. <laughs> gorgeous and I think it really it hits it on the head like I think that you are very approachable and even though that this like this is a very difficult topic and you know you're talking to a lot of black people about black pain suffering trauma state violence and the mediator is always critically crucial to that because if you you know give off that you don't actually really care about the content or the topic then it's you know your guests can feel it so I'm glad that other people are picking up on what a easy environment you've created in order to talk about something that is so painful for all of us yeah thank you I um I just remember kind of like the process I went through um, initially, even before the podcast, like basically laying down the foundation of the podcast with the the article I wrote. And I remember how um, all the emotions I went through, it was a lot, um, getting to step into that history and look at that history and just how violent it was. I just wanted to be able to be like, okay, so this is something we have to discuss, but how do we package this in a way that um, we're minimizing other Black people getting re-traumatized. Because it's one thing to retell this history, because it needs to be retold, but it also needs to be done in a way, like you said, Paula, that is loving and kind. Love should be at the root of everything. So that was an excellent voice note. So we're now going to move on to number two. 
it's actually really nice that the podcast brings things around to a UK context that sometimes gets lost in these conversations. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I completely agree with that voice note. I think the, I mean, it's something that we slightly touched on as well. Um, The frustration that I think a lot of Black people in Britain sometimes find because, you know, our curriculum when it comes to history is so densely populated with African-American history and, you know, often in favour of African-American history at the detriment of Black British history. So, you know, a lot of one of the examples that we normally employ is, you know, the Bristol bus boycott. But we're taught about Montgomery and how there were so many political movements and organisations and caucuses right here with a goal of international solidarity. And we just we don't know it. So, again, I think that it really speaks to why this podcast I think is actually fantastic in kind of bridging those gaps in conversation. I'm going to agree with you, Paula. I think this podcast was really interesting for me. There were pieces of British history that I was like aware of, but like there are other pieces that I just didn't know. America is a very self-centered, you know, that's the best word I'll I'll deploy today, self-centered country. So obviously they're filtering in what we learn, not just about this place and what the horrendous things that have happened here and have been orchestrated here, right? But they're also filtering what we know about the rest of the world, you know, how they got screwed over by American policy and politics and, and, you know, the connections to all that too, right? So, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear you say, that our history, quotations, right, the very, the little history that is allowed to leave this country um, finds its way over there in a way that's very simplified, but also kind of elevated, like you said, um, over actual histories that have occurred um, on UK slash British soil. Um, So it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that. But it's it's interesting because I feel like the U.S. and and Britain are very similar in the way that they suppress things, or specifically the way the way that things are when you live literally right in the the smack dab of the empire, right? You oh know, oh my god, yeah, the lack you, of empire. yeah, you know, it is different. It's different. Like, America's one thing, but I feel like people forget that, you know, Britain is the OG. The OG. <laughs> White. The first. Supremacist. The greatest. Evil. <laughs> like, the, oh, the original. Like, that's why I laugh at, you know, British whites who are like, oh, my God, Americans. And I'm like, you are their father. You don't speak on them. You need to speak on you. Literally, the policing system was imported from the UK into the US, like the actual greatest to ever do the colonization, yeah? It's it's absolutely wild. And I completely agree. There is such an agenda, especially in the way that we're taught. So like, I don't know if it would be, if it was similar for you, but when I was learning about history, it was very much Martin Luther King, good. Malcolm X, bad. And that kind of like that pitting against one another. So even there, when you're getting these scraps of history that aren't even, you know, within a British context. It's very much, 
this is how you do it. You do it quietly. You do it, you know, non-violently. Malcolm X with all of his, you know, fighting the white devil, that was too much. So therefore we're not even going to teach you that in a way that is conducive or that you can glean um, use from his teachings and his ideology. Yeah. I actually like the fact that Malcolm's ideology was so intense. It is not as easy to water down. Like, mm. respect to respect to MLK, you know, because his policies, especially later, surrounding, like, things like Vietnam, the Poor People's Campaign, they intentionally leave that part of his history out because it got very radical really fast. But I feel you, like, they, they take pieces of what fit the narrative, you know, because they don't want, they never want us angry. That's why they always demonize and pathologize our anger, because they know that there is always truth to it, right? But they also know what happens when we mobilize. All right, so now we are on to voice note number three. The Tulsa massacre is a momentous, tragic and vitally important moment in history that there should be wider and deeper cognizance of than there currently is. That makes Reclaimed and Rewritten a hugely vital and important piece of work that Gal Lem should be applauded for undertaking and delivering to such a high standard in terms of production values. So far it seems to be adding an important layer of critical analysis too. I'm particularly interested in the series' promise to examine utopian ideas held about Greenwood, leading to notions of an idyllic island of black capitalism, which, given that that class divisions and poverty persisted in Greenwood and the continued attacks on the black community, need careful consideration in the context of the permanent struggle against racial oppression. So I'm keen to see how this analysis and the look at the parallels with global struggles develop in the series. My activity in Boardwater Farm Defence Campaign in the days and months following the 1985 uprisings make me particularly interested in how the series will draw parallels between that moment in history and the Tulsa massacre. For me, when I hear descriptions of the trauma inflicted on Greenwood, I'm reminded of that time in North London in 1985. The visions of an army of police swarming like blue ants across the grey concrete of Broadwater Farm. Groups of us in the defence campaign going from police station to police station across the London boroughs of Haringey and Enfield in search of missing young people, often finding children stripped of clothing in police cells, supposedly awaiting charge for days without their parents being notified. Yes, a police officer's life was lost, as were the lives of two black mothers in that year. But it's almost as if white supremacy felt an urgent need to violently reassert and affirm its authority in Tottenham in 1985, as it did in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wow. That was... To the person who recorded that and sent that in, that was incredibly beautifully structured. Am I a journalist? Yes, I am. Um, The words were wonderful. Um, I think it was really, really poetic, um, thinking about the blue ants crawling across the grey concrete. I think that was just incredible. And again, it just shows like how these events of state violence, anti-black state violence, they resonate again and again and again and are no doubt triggers for a lot of black people as well. It sounds like they're from, you know, just this voice note alone. There are so many people and people that I know as well. One of my best friend's um, father was, you know, dragged out of bed because 
He lived on the estate as well. And police were just dragging people at like 5am and just like how this sticks with them. So yeah, I think that was, that was really incredible and very affirming. I found it really uh, important that they mentioned, you know, white supremacy asserting itself because that's what it always does um, when people come together and they put a chink in the armor of white supremacy. The the amount of violence that is unleashed in response is horrendous. Like we're actually going through that in the States right now where, you know, we had that whole summer of, I guess, political awakening for some people in this country who didn't happen to be black. And now we have people all over talking about critical race theory and trying to take black people and our literature out of libraries and schools and stuff. Like, White Lash, someone said it. I don't remember the reporter or whatever, but they name-dropped that on a broadcast one day. And and White Lash is real. Like, any significant inch of progress is going to be met with it. Absolutely, and... Trust me, those ripples were felt far beyond the US as well. You know, we had a lot of people here angry because I think state violence in the UK, it just gets demeaned, it gets erased, it gets reduced to, well, actually, you know, British police officers don't carry guns. Each police constabulary in this country has its own special firearms department so that is actually not factual like that is not true like there are British police officers with access to guns and also there's so much violence that has been done to black bodies by the state without guns if anything there is something visceral to me about strangling someone about placing a knee on their back about hitting people with batons leaving them in uncomfortable positions that restrict their breathing there is something that is so insidious and violent to me that it's not saying that one is worse than the other but i think that there is still like a level of distance sometimes with guns violence you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right, and now we are on to voice note number four. I've heard quite a lot about the Tulsa Massacre, and I like the approach that the podcast is taking. I almost said, thank you, kind citizen. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I'm very grateful for that voice note and, and definitely appreciate it. You know, as a writer, as a journalist, as someone who definitely, I believe in the things that I write. Like, I wouldn't, be talking about this. I wouldn't be writing about this if I didn't care. So acknowledgement is awesome. Acknowledgement is affirming. 
you know, it makes you feel like you're actually like doing something. Or I would specifically say making good use of your time too. Like we get in the grand scheme of things like two seconds to do something really important. So having this be one of the important things I'm like involved in means a lot. So appreciate that person. And now we're on to voice note number five. Hey, Galdem, just wanted to send a voice note to say thank you so much for this podcast. It's been so enlightening and just thank you for taking that deep dive into something that may have happened in our past that is so relevant to our present right now and something that, yes, although it happened in the 1920s, there's so many elements of it and the psychology of it that still echoes in today's systems and in the way that black people are treated and in the way that the system handles black people. And so thank you for going into that and really connecting the dots. As a person living in Leeds, um, as a black female living in Leeds, I really haven't had to deal with a lot of racism. Um, And thankfully, I haven't had to navigate spaces or rooms that have made me feel like my colour is an issue or anything like that. But it doesn't matter about my own personal experience. If that's what we're basing everything off, then unfortunately, we're all going to have very different views. But the combined black experience that has been lived for centuries and centuries and is still being lived till today really needs to be shown on these platforms like you've done and really needs to be analysed because when you see all those parallels from the lynching done in the past to contemporary lynchings like George Floyd, you realise that the system is just doing exactly what it was built to do, which is to protect the wealth and the supposed sanctity of um, those that created it. And it's not okay and it's not right. However, that's what it was built to do, and it's doing that. So thank you for really going into all of this and really shedding light on all the different aspects of this that helped to clear up misunderstandings, that helped to show us what really happened, what really went down, and what really shouldn't have and was an unfortunate killing and massacring of black wealth, and excellence and innovation and just so much more a community that really shouldn't have died like that but in you guys going down that rabbit hole and pulling it all out it's also nice to know that Tulsa wasn't the only one that there were other ones like Durham and it gives us hope that it is possible it is possible for us to build ourselves and build our communities and have something really powerful and hopefully establish generational wealth for our people as well. Now that I think about it as well, really, when I think of school and what they teach us, we're kind of taught that the black existence begins and ends with slavery. Like, that's it, as if, like, black people just grew out of nowhere in this time frame and then just disappeared at the same time as well when it all ended. Um, And that complete erasure of black efforts and participation well efforts and participation from any color really um in winning the wars in the expansion of civilization in industry growth all of that it's just not there and that's worrying because then 
what that really tells us is that they didn't value or find it important enough to document those efforts to then teach it to kids and those kids to teach it to their kids. They don't find that a necessary or valuable thing to know and be passed on. And so that's why it's so key, like you guys have done here, for us to dig into the past ourselves, pull those receipts out and say, yeah, we were here. We've always been here. Our history is rich. It is rich. And it precedes you. It goes way before your existence ever started. And you can't erase that. That's not something you can take away from us. You know, the present day that we're having right now clearly echoes stuff that has happened in the past. Contemporary lynchings like what happened to George Floyd just show us that. And so we can't be naive to think, oh, well, it's not as bad as it was back then. You know, they can't do that now. They may not do it the same way, but they can and they will because the system was built to do that. So we need to be careful about that, about just thinking that the past is the past or that it can't happen. But a question that I do have, because I do think it's really important for us to feed into Black-owned businesses and to pull ourselves together as a community for a much bigger picture of protecting ourselves and, you know, empowering those that come after us. Um, But my question is, with growing consumerism, globalism, all of that, how do we think it'll be possible to ever reclaim our culture and kind of really put a stamp on it and do something spectacular like Black Wall Street did. It'd be interesting to really hear your thoughts on that. So thank you again. It's very detailed voice note. I appreciate it. Very thorough. I think that that voice note was actually really important because I think it's how a lot of people feel when they are encountering events, historical events of like black subjugation. And this is maybe one of the first encounters that they've had, for example. And I'm so glad that this person has taken so much from the podcast and it's kind of pushing the way that they're thinking. I think that one thing that I will say is that I don't think it serves us to mythologize black people who've come before us. I think that we hollow out their contributions and those contributions could be short achievements, but they could also have been to the detriment of a lot of other black people. So I am currently writing a book around 12 African queens and one of my kind of guiding parameters for it is that I do not want to mythologize them or I'm trying to challenge and work against that as intensely as I can because you lose so much about the humanity of that person the fact that they were able to make mistakes that they were able to cause harm and harm to a lot of communities especially when they're in a position of power and for example, still sticking with the Queen example, we're so used to, I think because we're so used to being objects of subjugation or having violences enacted against us that we grasp so tightly onto any examples that suggest otherwise, that suggest that we were royalty, that suggest that we could attain some sort of wealth, that suggest that we could 
build for ourselves, you know, and I think it stops us from asking further questions. So, you know, thinking about how the person in the voice note used, you know, the expansion of civilization as something that black people contributed to, like, what does civilization actually mean? And is there a way that we can extract that from white supremacy from whiteness because I don't think that we can I think that when we're talking about civilization we're talking about a particular form of distorted Christianity we're talking about missionary work in order to save black people African people from themselves in order to try and convert them in order to have access to their resources so I think that when we are talking about black achievement I think that we do ourselves and we do those people a huge disservice in not challenging and interrogating the harm the potential fallout and how our own subjectivity plays into that how we just so desperately want to have people to look up to that weren't enslaved that weren't in pain and you know constant suffering because Obviously, and unfortunately, that is all that we have, you know, from our history. So I get it. I just, I would warn against maybe constantly looking for achievement in spaces where we can also speak about the violence that Black people can and have enacted against one another in search of bettering themselves, air quotes, whatever that means. I hope that made some sense. That made perfect sense. On the first hand, it is important to make sure people know that Black people just didn't spawn here after slavery. Like, it, we're not, we're, this is not a video game. You know, they, we didn't magically pop onto the continent and it was like, hey, what's up? That's not what happened. And so it is important, like that note said, to like complicate those narratives. Well, we're all over the place. We've always been around. We've always been here. You know, just because this is this happened doesn't mean this is our only history, right? On the flip side of that, I'm definitely agreeing with you. Yeah, the whole point of this series was to not mythologize what happened. But at the same time, I want to discourage people from this inherent shame that we're made to feel, not only in the States, but even across the pond, right? Like, they, they constantly throw that back in our face. And I want people to know that, hey, we weren't given a choice, right? But we don't have to carry that shame with us. So that's the first part, right? Um, the second part is I want us to be careful, always be careful about mythologizing Black Wall Street. That's that's actually why we're here. That's that's why we started this podcast. We always, again, complicate those narratives. So we can't have the solution to everything be Black capitalism once again. Like, it has to look different. The saying goes, the definition of insanity is doing same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. So when you're faced with something like this, you got you have to try something different. Even if we're basing things on merit or achievement, like that needs to look different. And if it's something that's still trying to center itself on capitalism, it's not, it's going to be false. It's going to be a faulty foundation. It's going to fall flat on his face. You know, when I think about like success in community, right, I'm thinking about, um, community initiatives. I'm thinking about like gardens. I'm thinking about shared resources. I'm thinking about things like that. That's what I'm, I'm thinking about when I, I am thinking about a 
a well-oiled, I guess, community of Black people. It can't just be about businesses or Black-owned this, Black-owned that. You know, it, that it has to look different for us. It's going to be uncomfortable because not everyone has all the answers, obviously. And I would hope that we would still care about the Tulsa massacre, even if it didn't mean the erasure or disappearance of Black Wall Street. I would hope that those lives in and of themselves as everyday actors was enough for us to care about their demise. Let's hear our sixth and final voice note. The UK Connection episode made me think a lot about the story of the Windrush generation and the generations that followed, of Caribbean grandparents and parents who moved over to the UK on the promise of a better life, including my own. It reminded me of one family story I learned a few years ago, when my granddad worked on the buses in Birmingham and found a group of white men beating up another black man at the back of the bus, and how my granddad came out of his bus shelter to intercept and help the person being attacked, and how that poor person saw his opportunity to escape and essentially ran off, leaving my granddad, who was then badly beaten and left with a scar on his head that would remain for the rest of his life and which he would grow his hair out long and wear caps to cover up. I never really knew my grandfather. The stories I've been told were that he was an incredibly violent man and ultimately my grandma left him as soon as she could and my granddad returned to Jamaica. But after I learned that story in passing, I wondered how the misery that my granddad felt being in this country played into his violence. I once found a note he had written, and that was the only opportunity that I really ever had to hear his voice. It was written shortly after my grandma had left him, and I think some of the pages had the stones of tears. Obviously, most of those details are private between my grandma and my grandfather, and I wonder how much I really should have read but it was my only opportunity to get to know him somehow, given he passed a few years back. In that letter, my granddad wrote about how he had moved here by himself and lived on basically nothing so that he could send money home in order to move my dad, his siblings and my grandma to England. One thing I remember in particular is that he mentioned having one pair of trousers, which he paid for on credit. After I read that letter and after I had learnt the story of the attack on the bus. I wondered if my granddad had always been the violent man that I'd come to know him as, or whether some of the cruelty of the UK turned him into that man. That story only came up in passing when we were sat down as a family and reminiscing. The episode reminded me that this isn't just one story, it's one of many. Most of us in the diaspora have them, and you usually only find them out by chance. They're hidden away because they're just an accepted part of the process and part of the struggle, And in the same way, they're forgotten or risk being forgotten. And the episode made me wonder, how do we hold on to these stories? Not as if this is the only part of the legacy of our grandparents and our parents, but so as to remember what they suffered and went through for our existence here today. And I guess that's the same question with Black Wall Street. That actually, like, proper, that voice note hit me in the gut. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that with us. This is kind of what we were talking about in trying to complicate these narratives because I think it's almost too easy to dismiss your grandfather as, you know, just another violent black man, obviously fed into by stereotypes. And I think you're right. I think what you've actually identified is very perceptive that the UK 
played a very defining role. And not just the UK government, but the way in which his blackness was encountered and understood. And there have been so many moments where I feel I'm so angry because you feel so helpless. Like, I think one of the most poignant ones for me over the last couple of years was actually the Meghan Markle interview with Oprah and how especially I would say a lot of black people not from the UK were talking about how Meghan was kind of blowing open the British establishment and the royal family etc and all of these conversations around being a black person in the UK were being tangentially touched on, but only with regards to Meghan Markle, who is still, you know, a person who refers to herself as biracial, who's very light-skinned, has very Eurocentric features. Like, it doesn't even begin to touch, like, the material conditions for black people living in this country. And when you're seeing these conversations happening, but, like, around you without thinking, like, without speaking to your experiences specifically, it's enough to make you absolutely question your own sanity and to perhaps harness that anger in a way that you are harming other people around you which I think is what could have happened with your grandfather so I think that there has to be some some sort of grace given to a man who was you know trying to help another person another black person on a bus and set upon then you know someone who's encountering that day after day you're also thinking about class divides only able to get one pair of trousers on credit like all of these factors which can be ultimately boiled down to anti-blackness falling in the jaws of capitalism that must be so difficult to even process poverty is very powerful the way that blackness is weaponized against us. Um, and then you add poverty to mix. And unfortunately, the unsavory parts of us can leap out. Like, you know, we're not going to excuse what your grandfather did because that's trifling. And there's a there's a separate conversation to be had about what basically the trickle-down rage that happens when, you know, black men dealing with what, you know, what black men deal with. Like, when they bring that home and then, you know, now... Black women who are present or maybe black children now then get the brunt of that, right? There's a whole separate conversation to be had about that, which is why I don't want to let anyone off the hook. But at the same time, um, poverty is very powerful. I'll give you a really modern example with me. Um, for a long time, I had undiagnosed bipolar disorder, too. I didn't know that. Um, so I was able to survive the just the tyrannical nature of my parents' home, the all the trauma that happened to me. I was able to leave, right? But I carried that with me. And I was, you know, at one point, very, very toxic person. Like, I was, you know, I was not good. I was not good, you know. But then I got a little bit of extra money, and then I could afford medicine and therapy. So then suddenly I didn't have to be that toxic person anymore. But when poverty is present, it just, like I said, it brings out the worst parts of us. And unfortunately, the people around us, even that we love, suffer. Um, so I, I think it was really important that you present your grandfather in a way that, you know, there's some duality there. Um, like there were some good good qualities there. I completely agree with what you said. I think just trying to honour people, like you said, in their duality and try and at least understand what could cause someone who, you know, was able to do something 
that was so useful and trying to reduce harm, how they could also at the same time produce that same harm. And I'm so grateful that your grandmother decided that she couldn't do it because I think like Clarkisha has said, like black women, you know, black carers, like these are the kind of the hidden figures that often are forgotten about when um, there is violence taking place within the home, when there is abuse taking place in the home. So I want to start off by saying that, you know, with this being the final episode of Reclaimed and Rewritten, I want to dedicate this episode, but also the entire series to not just survivors who witnessed some truly atrocious things, but I want to dedicate it to um, those who weren't here to tell us their story, people who were justly killed. I want to um, dedicate this to people who were killed, who weren't put to rest properly. You know, we had several episodes where we talked about the disgraceful and disgusting way those killed were just kind of tossed aside, tossed into a marked graves. The biggest issue with the Tulsa massacre is that we are still continuing to this day to find those graves, those unmarked graves that people were just kind of carelessly tossed into. Um, so I want to dedicate this episode and this series to them because they should still be here or they should have gotten to live their lives. So much history was lost, so much family, so much culture. So yeah, I want to dedicate this to them. I just wanted to second everything that Clarkisha said. When I'm thinking about the work that we did in the episodes I've been involved in as well, I think a lot about Anthony Burbeck, who lost his life after the New Cross fire and is often forgotten um, when people talk about whose lives were taken that night. And I also want to think about all of the black people who have had to live with all of this trauma and are still unable to find the words and the ways and the vocabulary to explain what they've lived through and are still struggling with the the very truth that we know is the truth but they have been told so many times again and again that it's in their heads or that, you know, the system is working as it should be. And it makes me so sad when I think about all of the pain that a lot of black people, both in the UK, US and all around the globe, are carrying and holding with them. So I just wanted to put a little dedication there as well. That's it, guys. We've come to the end of season one of Reclaim the Rewritten. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey and contributing your thoughts and perspectives on the story of the Tulsa Massacre and the connection with the UK. Don't forget you can follow Galdem on all social media platforms at Galdemzine, G-A-L-D-E-M-Z-I-N-E. I really hope you enjoyed the series. Thank you for listening. Reclaimed and Rewritten was written and produced by Iwan Obanyan with production and sound design by II Studios. Our production assistant was Ade Demola Bajomo. The executive producers at Galdem were Moya Lotian McLean and Suyin Haynes. The creative producers at Galdem were Bijal Shah and Mario Richards.
with graphics produced by Karis Pierre. Reclaimed and Rewritten was hosted by me, Clarkisha Kent. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.